Hello and welcome to Celluloid 70s, the podcast that celebrates the films of the 1970s, whether they deserve it or not. I'm Ali and I'll be your guide on this audio road trip through the UK film releases of the most pivotal and unpredictable decade in Hollywood history, where in this series we're currently focusing on the year 1970. This week, following on from the last Hammer Films-focused episode, we're going to continue exploring some of the horror releases of 1970, of which there are a surprising amount, by the way. The films I've got lined up for you this week are the two 1970 releases from one of Hammer's biggest rivals, Amicus Films. Namely, The Mind of Mr. Soames, starring Terence Stamp in a very different role for him, and Scream and Scream Again, the first film to feature the literal triple threat of Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. Kind of, but more of that later. Like last episode, I thought it would make sense to cover a little of the history of Amicus before we discuss the films themselves, how they were formed and the journey that took them to 1970 and the release of this week's films. Once upon a time, 1956 to be exact, a shy sci-fi nerd and a law graduate from New York submitted a screenplay to Associated Artists Productions. Their names were Milton Subotsky and Max Rosenberg, and the script was called Frankenstein and the Monster. Screenwriter Milton Subotsky and producer Max Rosenberg weren't exactly newcomers to the movie business. They'd already produced a couple of films under the name Vanguard Productions. These had been cheap-to-produce attempts at cashing in on the rock and roll movie craze sparked by Rock Around the Clock. They didn't exactly set the world on fire as examples of the cinematic art, but the opportunity to see the biggest rock and roll stars of the day on the big screen had proved popular enough to make them moderately successful at least. Even if Rosenberg himself described them as a bunch of songs connected to a stupid plot. However, the rock and roll crowd, they had proved somewhat fickle and the music industry was so fast-moving that even with Milton Subotsky's lightning-speed production times, the artists on the screen could well be past their sell-by date by the time of the movie's release. So, Vanguard Productions realised it was time to move on to the next big youth market in 1950s cinema. Horror. Milton Subotsky set about writing his own take on the Frankenstein story, Frankenstein and the Monster, with the intention of returning to what he considered to be the true origins of the tale. Subotsky was pretty pleased with his screenplay and he submitted it to Associated Artists in confidence that there was a successful movie idea in there. However, Associated Artists passed on the script. And then they sent it to Hammer Studios, who also rejected it for being derivative, talky and badly constructed. But they also had another concern, which Vanguard Productions weren't aware of. Milton Subotsky had been so heavily inspired by Universal's classic interpretation of the monster when he wrote the script that it was shaping up to be a copyright nightmare. Hammer had announced that they had a Frankenstein movie coming up, and Universal had their lawyers on speed dial ready and waiting for any evidence of copyright infringement in the depiction of the creature. Now, from Rosenberg and Sabotsky's perspective, their screenplay had just been outright rejected, but they had received a $5,000 rejection payout, so it hadn't been a complete loss. And that appeared to be that for Frankenstein and the monster. 
except that soon afterwards, Hammer released to great success, as we covered in the last episode, a film called The Curse of Frankenstein, a movie with uncanny similarities to the script for Frankenstein and the Monster, which kick-started the Frankenstein franchise revival and ushered in a period of huge success and popularity for Hammer films. Milton Subotsky and Max Rosenberg were understandably upset and disappointed. Rather than outright rejecting Vanguard's screenplay as they'd originally believed, Hammer had rewritten it without their knowledge. Ever the man of business, Max may have felt cheated, but he understood the industry and he was content to move on. But Milton walked away from the whole experience with a burning resentment against Hammer Films. But Vanguard Productions soon got back to the business of making movies themselves. There was a film adaptation of Broadway prison breakout drama The Last Mile, starring Mickey Rooney, followed in 1960 by Girl of the Night, led by Forbidden Planet star Anne Francis, as a high-class hooker. Then these X-rated productions were surprisingly followed by a family-friendly lassie rip-off called Lad, a dog. But Sabotsky wasn't entirely ready to move on from his experience with Hammer, and he was desperate for an opportunity to break into the horror market and show them how they were doing it wrong. Milton Sabotsky had some unused TV scripts from a proposed Boris Karloff TV series which had remained unsold, and he selected one of these as inspiration for a new horror script. It was a story about a student in peril on a field trip to a town of devil worshippers. Despite the fact that the story was originally set in New England, Max and Milton had developed a plan to produce the film in the UK, and there were two very good reasons for this. Number one was that, thanks to Hammer, the UK was now widely acknowledged as the home of the horror movie. And two, money. In particular, something called the ED levy, a British government tax on box office receipts designed to boost the UK film industry. The ED levy ran from 1957 all the way through to 1985 and it worked by splitting off a percentage of the revenue from every cinema ticket sold in the country, then dividing that money between the exhibitor and, crucially, a fund to support the production of new British films. There was just one problem from Vanguard Productions' perspective. They were American and the ED levy was only available to British filmmakers. And thus, Rosenberg and Sabotsky's newest venture, the UK-based Vulcan Films, was born. And their Devil Worshippers in New England script went into production in Old England, under the new name City of the Dead. The film starred Christopher Lee, Patricia Jessel, and the man in black himself, Valentine Dial, with RKO ingenue Venetia Stevenson in the lead role. Despite Sabotsky's ambitions for the film, It was only picked up as a second feature by British Lion, and it struggled to gain a US release at all, possibly hampered by being a black-and-white chiller in a time when Roger Corman and Hammer Films were releasing vividly coloured horror sensations. Milton Sabotsky's time in the UK making City of the Dead was far from hassle-free. There were problems with funding and the script when he arrived in England, But the experience of life on the other side of the Atlantic had suited the shy and quiet Subotsky so well that he decided to stay. There had recently been some internal disagreements between Milton and Max over production credits, which had sorely tested their friendship. But they had managed to move on from these, agreeing to form the new UK-based production company 
so that they could continue making films together with the benefit of the ED levy. Perhaps they realised that keeping an entire ocean between them might be just what was needed to improve their working relationship, but whether it was chosen as a declaration of a newly mended friendship or an aspirational commitment to do better in the future, the name they chose for their newest venture was Amicus, Latin for friend. Amicus was formed in November 1961 and based fairly unofficially at Shepperton Studios, out of an office which director Norman J. Warren once described as the porter cabin in the car park, and they were soon at work on their first production under this new banner. It had always been Sabotsky's intention that Amicus should produce family-friendly entertainment, and this is evident from the studio's earliest output, such as their first release, 1962's It's Trad, Dad, aka Ring-a-Ding Rhythm. This was apparently Sabotsky's favourite of all his films, and it could perhaps best be described as um, Jazz Footloose. In the new town of Bad Trad, England, no really, a battle ensues between the jazz-crazy youngsters and the older generation of squares, as exemplified by the mayor who's determined to clamp down on the threat of creeping jazzism. Literally a quote from the film. Despite the corny name, this Richard Lester-directed movie featured the cream of the British jazz scene, and a tongue-in-cheek style which hinted at what Lester would later bring to those Beatles movies. Next came Just for Fun, another youth versus the oldies movie. Both these films were essentially just a throwback to their rock and roll craze exploitation movies of the 50s, with performances by the latest singers and bands of the time linked together by DJ intros and flimsy plots. And they met a pretty similar fate in that they were moderately successful but dated almost as soon as they were released. Yet again, it was time to switch genres and set their sights on a new voyage into the world of horror. In 1965, Amicus released their first horror anthology movie, a format which was to become their trademark. The film was Dr. Terror's House of Horror and starred Peter Cushing as a mysterious tarot reader predicting the fates of a train carriage full of increasingly unsettled passengers. As well as Cushing, the film starred an extraordinarily eclectic cast, including Christopher Lee, DJ Alan Fluff Freeman, British jazz trumpeter and future children's TV star Roy Castle, and an early role for Donald Sutherland. These films were inspired by the classic 1945 Ealing Studios film, The Dead of Night, and followed the same template. Feature-length films containing four or five different spooky stories within an overarching plot or linked by a character who acts as a narrator. Sabotsky was said to have loved this format because it didn't give the audience time to get bored. But the other advantage was that each character would only feature in the short linking sections such as the train carriage scenes in Dr. Terror's House of Horror and their own individual story which would often only last 15 minutes or so. Rosenberg smartly realised that this meant that the cast members only needed to be hired for a day or two at a time, and this had two advantages. One was that it was easy for popular actors to slip an appearance in an amicus film into their busy schedule between larger and probably better paying jobs. But it was also cost-effective for amicus too, because they could offer a slightly enhanced day rate to attract bigger names. This enabled them to hire the bigger stars in horror like Cushing and Lee, 
as well as successful stage actors like Patrick McGee and Ralph Richardson, or rising stars like Donald Sutherland and Robert Powell. Dr. Terror's House of Horror was released to largely positive reviews, and it proved to be their biggest hit to date. Perhaps helped by their decision to bolster the production with horror legends Leon Cushing, and behind-the-scenes Hammer alumni like director Freddie Francis and cinematographer Alan Hume. Or perhaps it was the novelty of the format, or its more family-friendly light horror tone. But for whatever reason, it was and remains one of the most successful and well-loved films. Despite the success of their return to horror, Amicus continued to put out a wide variety of movies throughout the 60s, building up their own repertory company of actors and regular production teams. Continuing to work with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, director Freddie Francis, and regular director of photography John Wilcox. In 1965 and 66, Amicus worked very closely with psycho author Robert Block. There was the giallo esque thriller The Psychopath, based on Block's story Schizo, and an adaptation of his short story The Skull of the Marquis de Sade, released as just The Skull. Block also adapted H.F. Hurd's book, A Taste for Honey, into a film entitled The Deadly Bees in 1966, followed the same year by another portmanteau horror called Torture Garden. Amicus also produced two movie spin-offs of BBC's Doctor Who, starring Peter Cushing, hoping to take advantage of the immense popularity of the Daleks at the time. In 1967, Amicus produced an underwhelming Soviet spy thriller called Danger Route, and that was followed by two science fiction films which were distributed as a double feature, The Terranauts and They Came From Beyond Space. The last two were the result of an agreement with Embassy Pictures, who had promised Amicus that they would finance and release two of their films if they could produce them both for £200,000. An ambitious but less than successful attempt, I'm afraid. The Terranauts apparently consumed most of the budget, leaving almost nothing behind for they came from beyond space, despite Amicus recycling their old Doctor Who sets and props to cut costs. Amicus then closed out the decade in a characteristically unpredictable style, producing William Friedkin's passion project film adaptation of Harold Pinter's play The Birthday Party in 1968, followed by Margaret Drabble's adaptation of her own novel The Millstone about a pregnant student in 1969's A Touch of Love. Even the most enthusiastic film fan is unlikely to have seen most of Amicus's output from the 1960s. Dr. Terror's House of Horror has become a favourite amongst horror fans, and the two Doctor Who films were on regular rotation on British TV in the 70s and 80s. In fact, Peter Cushing might well have been the first portrayal of the Doctor that I ever saw. The other releases, however, have largely sunk into obscurity, having failed to please either reviewers or audiences. However, thanks to Max Rosenberg's shrewd business sense and the fact that films produced on such restricted budgets only needed to do very moderate business at the box office to break even, Amicus rarely, if ever, made a significant loss and they survived to fight another day. So now we find ourselves in 1970 and Amicus are still going strong but with their fingers burnt from their ventures in sci-fi and drama, They will release two horror, or at least horror-adjacent films this year, Scream and Scream Again and The Mind of Mr. Soames. So at the birth of the new decade, Amicus find themselves still trying to compete head-to-head with those arch-rivals Hammer, 
And due to the fact that they were two British-based studios working in the same genre at the same time, over the years, viewers have often got them a bit confused. So here's a quick cheat sheet on how to tell whether you're likely to be watching a Hammer or an Amicus horror movie. Number one, screenplays adapted from books or other media. Sabotsky and Rosenberg were both voracious readers, and they had an eye for existing IPs with intriguing plots and concepts. Number two, shoestring budgets and recycled sets. Money was always tight, and this was not going to change going into the 70s. Number three, modern settings. If in doubt, just check the calendar. Corsets, britches, 18th century Bavarian taverns, hammer. Everyday locations, contemporary sets and modern costumes which can be acquired at minimal cost and inconvenience, amicus. Number four, mixed reviews. Now don't get me wrong, Hammer movies also got their fair share of divided opinions, but as we'll see this week, Amicus's fondness for unique content could lead to reviews that were not just mixed, but sometimes positively baffled. And finally, number five, a character called Maitland. It's a name that crops up consistently in Milton Sabotsky's scripts, and once you've become aware of it, you can't not notice it anymore. The reasons for this are still fairly enigmatic, I'm afraid. Milton Sabotsky was once asked what had inspired this unusual fixation on the word Maitland, to which his reply was, I just like the name. First up this week is a film called The Mind of Mr. Soames, with the eye-catching tagline, Can This Baby Kill? The Mind of Mr. Soames came to the screen as a result of Milton Sabotsky's desire to branch out into new genres after Amicus's name became associated with the horror genre. Initially, Amicus had been trying to gain the rights to the award-winning 1966 novel Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful in their bid, losing out to ABC Studios, who adapted the book into a film called Charlie, starring Cliff Robertson as a man whose IQ is dramatically increased in a scientific experiment. Released in 1968, Charlie actually turned out to be one of ABC's few successful productions and won Robertson an Oscar for his performance in the lead role. So, Amicus turned their focus on the similarly themed novel, The Mind of Mr. Soames by Charles Eric Maine. This time, Max successfully secured the rights, and with generous funding provided by Columbia, the film went into production in January 1969 and was released in UK cinemas in October 1970. The Mind of Mr. Soames tells the story of a 30-year-old man, the eponymous Mr. John Soames, played by Terence Stamp, who has been kept in an induced coma since birth due to brain damage caused by a difficult delivery. But now, American surgeon Dr. Bergen believes he can cure the damage and bring Mr. Soames safely out of his coma so that the team at the institute who've taken care of him, led by the authoritarian Dr. Maitland, can take on the daunting task of putting Mr. Soames on an accelerated learning program with the aim of preparing him to finally join society. And all under the watchful gaze of a TV film crew commissioned to make a documentary about this medically unprecedented process. Terence Stamp heads up a solid cast, which includes Robert Vaughan in the lead role of Dr. Bergen. 
Vaughan was probably most famous at the time for playing Napoleon Solo in The Man from Uncle, but also for other high-profile roles in The Protectors and The Magnificent Seven. Fun fact, at around this time, Vaughan would actually have been busy working on becoming a doctor in real life, working on his thesis on the blacklisting of Hollywood entertainers under Senator McCarthy's witch hunts for his PhD in communications. Meanwhile, Dr Maitland is played by Nigel Davenport, a familiar face on British TV from the mid-1950s onwards. Notable roles include A Man for All Seasons, Mary Queen of Scots, Phase Four, Van Helsing in Dan Curtis's TV movie of Dracula, and later Chariots of Fire and Howard's Way. It's a perfect piece of casting, as we shall see, as Davenport has exactly the kind of voice and imposing screen presence to find himself often typecast in professional, military or villainous roles. The most notable actors uh, in the parts of the TV crew are the star of To Sir With Love and The Anniversary, Christian Roberts, and Vickery Turner, whose TV and stage appearances at that time included Nigel Neal's The Year of the Sex Olympics, Dennis Potter's stand-up Nigel Barton, and the role of Sandy in The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And watch out for an early appearance by Christopher Timothy, a few years before he would shoot to TV stardom as James Herriot in All Creatures Great and Small. The Mind of Mr. Soames was directed by Alan Cook, a British director best known in the 60s for his work on TV programmes like Armchair Theatre and The Wednesday Play, before moving to the US to direct episodes of iconic TV shows like Quincy, Heart to Heart, Airwolf and Lou Grant. And the cinematographer was Billy Williams, who was previously Oscar nominated for his work on Women in Love. After The Mind of Mr. Soames, he went on to work on a film called The Ballad of Tam Lin, which we'll talk about in more depth in a later episode. Other notable productions include Sunday Bloody Sunday on Golden Pond and Gandhi, for which he won an Oscar. You'll find a really entertaining interview with Billy Williams on the Blu-ray release of this film. So if Amicus were looking to stray from the horror genre, what manner of beast exactly is this film? Well, some stories don't fit neatly into predefined categories, and this is one of them. Is it a horror? Sci-fi? Drama? What do we call a film about science versus nature? Compassion versus control? About the rise of voyeuristic television spectacles and the importance of empathy? For all practical purposes, The Mind of Mr. Soames is generally regarded as a horror film, probably because that's the genre Amicus is known for, or perhaps because of the noticeable parallels between the titular Mr. Soames an imposing adult male figure with the unformed intellect of a child who flees his creator and the creature from Frankenstein. But the film doesn't really contain much of what we traditionally think of as scenes of horror, despite some moments of violence and tension. With the possible exception of the opening scene, where we follow one of the Institute's doctors down to something ominously named the Cold Tank Room, which it turns out is where Mr. Soames is kept on life support in something not entirely unlike a glass-fronted deli counter. The room is full of lots of massive grey wardrobe-sized machines with big dials the size of cathedral door knockers and lots of people in white coats milling about. And that gives us an opportunity for some convenient medical exposition to fill in the backstory for us at the start of the film. It all has rather the look of a modern-day Frankenstein's laboratory, so you could be forgiven for expecting that's the kind of film you've signed up for. And while all that is happening, pioneering surgeon Dr. Bergen is flying to the UK to reverse John Soames' brain damage and bring him out of his 30-year coma, 
We see him on his flight, sitting next to a young mother with a distressed baby. He is calm and smiling, reassuring both mother and baby that the child's crying is understandable and healthy. And it's a pretty neat way to introduce us to his character. He's got the instincts of a parent, and he understands that children have emotions which can't and shouldn't be stifled. It's clear he believes that compassionate management is more effective than harsh discipline. And this belief is going to be the driving force for the dramatic tension in the film. While he's making his way to the clinic, we see the camera crew arrive, having been commissioned to produce a fly-on-the-wall documentary, not only on the surgery itself, but also the subsequent gruelling process of educating this 30-year-old infant. It's clear that the clinical director, Nigel Davenport's Dr Maitland, is keen to raise his profile by documenting his management of this unique medical case. So we've already neatly set up the foundational dilemma of this film. After all these years of caring for him as basically an inanimate object, does Dr Maitland's clinic see Mr Soames as a patient in need of care or an interesting and unique case which will turn the eyes of the medical world on them? It's fortunate, therefore, that the surgery is a complete success because it really could have been a bit awkward otherwise. And it's when John Soames comes round from his surgery opens his eyes and comes to consciousness for the first time, that all these underlying conflicts and tensions start to collide. Dr Bergen, responsible for post-operative care, is quick to demand that the clamouring camera crew, having terrified Soames with their noise and lights, are shut outside to provide the patient with some calm and dignity. And as Soames' recovery progresses, it soon becomes abundantly clear that the two doctors have quite different ideas about how to manage their patient and his newly emerging personality. Dr Maitland has a hefty training manual written and ready to roll out with John Soames. It's full of rigid schedules and set milestones. With no flexibility to allow for impulsivity or enjoying the moment, he hasn't accounted for anything not going to plan for Mr. Soames responding with human emotions like tiredness, sadness or playfulness. Or, God forbid, the possibility that his plan is just wrong. Meanwhile, surgeon Dr. Bergen has a very different approach. His concern about his patient's management encourages him to extend his stay in the UK and play a bigger part in Mr. Soames' mental and emotional development. He buys a large collection of toys emphasises learning through play and encourages the understanding that sometimes a child's mind just needs a break from the pressure. Meanwhile, the documentary crew look on, because John Soames is not just part man, part infant, but also part medical experiment and part TV spectacle. So through all this push and pull and constant scrutiny, poor John Soames is just trying to get to grips with everything really, had to manage his own uncoordinated six-foot body, his volatile emotions, the educational hot housing he's undergoing and his growing desire to learn what exists outside of this single room with its goldfish bowl viewing window through which the chuckling camera crew watch his every move. And Terence Stamp is magnificent as John Soames, a role that comes at a really interesting point in his career. A former flatmate of Michael Caine's, he famously dated supermodel Jean Shrimpton and actress Julie Christie. He'd been one of the iconic figures of 60s Carnaby Street cool, having shot to fame in 1962 in the lead role in Peter Ustinov's Billy Budd, 
By the time Terence Stamp was offered the role of John Soames, he'd already worked for William Wyler, Joseph Losey, John Schlesinger, Ken Loach and Pier Paolo Pasolini. But this film comes around the time that Stamp's moment in the spotlight seemed to be coming to an end. By the early 70s, he'd noticed the phone had stopped ringing and his agent informed him that casting directors were now looking for a young Terence Stamp. At 31, Stamp understandably felt rejected by the film industry and convinced his career was over, he bought a round-the-world plane ticket and dropped out, spending most of the 70s in ashrams in India until his agent offered him the chance to work with Marlon Brando on Superman. And maybe his performance here gives some clue as to why the film industry didn't know what to do with him at this time. When he hit the comeback trail in the early 80s, it was largely in the role of villain, which is not uncommon for British actors in Hollywood when they get to around 40. But despite his absurdly good looks, yes, I am a bit biased, been a big fan for a long time, he'd never really been locked into those heroic, handsome leading man roles. He was already playing more psychologically complicated characters in the 60s and 70s. He really just didn't seem to be afraid of playing against his good guy, good looks. And as John Soames, he really abandons all ego and commits to the role of six-foot toddler. Wearing a pink romper suit, bouncing up and down with excitement for his dinner, eating with his hands, throwing tantrums and cheating at Scalextric. Some of these scenes are really fun to watch and you get genuinely invested in seeing Soames learn to speak and play and interact with others. Which makes the more combative scenes where his childish instincts are stifled by Dr Maitland seem all the more sad and moving. But it's the result of those moments where you see Stamp's face darken with petulant anger that brings this film closer to the realm of horror. Because remember that tagline, can this baby kill? Well, a six-foot adult male having a toddler tantrum is nothing to laugh at. And that's when the conflicting approaches of the two doctors stops being theory and becomes urgently relevant. Throughout the film, I found it impossible not to side with Dr. Bergen's gentle and supportive attitude to John, encouraging him to learn through making his own decisions. But as Soames' desperate need for freedom and new experiences overcomes him, the importance of Dr. Maitland's focus on impulse control becomes more obvious. And it's at about this point that I start wondering, dramatically speaking, what the point of the TV camera crew is in this narrative. Because once the film gets going, they don't really have anything to do except to act as a kind of Greek chorus, reacting with sadness or laughter as they watch the John Soames show play out on the other side of the glass viewing screen. And I'd rather assume that their presence would be one of the catalysts for the plot, but despite a big build-up for the hard-nosed personality of the documentary's presenter, played by Christian Roberts, he doesn't have any real interaction with John Soames or the medics between the time Soames first wakes up until the final scene. There's a small action by the camera crew at the end of the film, which triggers the final drama, but you could have removed them from the whole scene and achieved the same result in a very slightly different way, and it really wouldn't have made any difference. And it does seem like a bit of a waste of the talented cast that they've hired for those roles. So rather than it being those marginal characters of the TV crew that tip poor John Soames over the edge, it's those conflicting medical opinions, one encouraging freedom and one trying to teach control, 
that brings about the crisis point in this drama when Soames makes his bid for freedom. And although it's not a complicated plot by any means, I'm not going to provide any more details or spoilers here because it's such an underseen film and it seems a shame to give too much away if you haven't seen it. It's such a rare treat to see a film you know nothing about. But let's just say that those Frankenstein parallels remain strong through to the film's ending, which a lot of people have admittedly found unsatisfying as endings go. And it is an ambiguous end to be sure, leaving only the smallest clue of what the future holds for these characters. On first viewing, I was left feeling that things were too unresolved with no one apart from Mr. Soames actually learning anything, no real character development at all. But on rewatching, I realised that in a film this unshowy and actually somewhat theatrical rather than cinematic, it's perhaps no coincidence that they've cast the highly regarded Irish stage actor Donald Donnelly in a small but key role as one of the clinic's doctors. He's the first and last character that you see, and I feel that your feelings towards how the film resolves itself rests on the subtleties of that character. In fact, this film could have worked just as well on stage as on screen, and it does seem to have had some script writing issues behind the scenes. The final script has a co-writing credit to someone called Edward Simpson. The story goes that this was in fact a pseudonym used by the Hollywood writer Stanley Jaffe, who Columbia insisted on drafting in to improve the script. However, even after paying Jaffe $100,000 to fine-tune the script, still no one was very happy with the end result, including Jaffe himself, who abdicated responsibility and asked to be credited under the name Edward Simpson, thought to be a crafty reference to King Edward VIII, who famously abdicated the throne for his wife, Mrs. Simpson. And that might explain why the film ends up feeling inconsequential. The narrative is pretty simple. There are no subplots, no payoffs, no real sense of what it wants to achieve. The conflicts and dilemmas are set up, the questions are asked, but none are really resolved. Things happen, but they could just as easily have not happened or happened in a different way. It's a frustratingly unsatisfying film, given the talent involved and the fact that I genuinely felt quite invested in the characters. But despite that, there's plenty that I enjoyed. I particularly enjoyed the beautiful moment of John Soames finally getting to explore the outside world and finding out what snowdrops taste like. There's some lovely ladybird book nostalgia as part of his training montage, which took me way back to my childhood. And the moment where a playful Soames, with no warning, lobs a ball straight into Dr. Maitland's head in an act of revenge for something that happened earlier makes me chuckle every time I watch it. I'd happily watch more of those scenes. I loved Robert Vaughan's performance as Dr. Bergen. I think he's quite an underrated actor, to be honest, and always a joy to watch. And there's a very tense scene on a train towards the end of the film, which I'm fairly sure involves some genuine low-key stunt work by Terence Stamp himself. Apart from what I've already discussed, the most distracting negatives for me would be that, despite fine performances by Vaughan and Davenport, the very binary approaches by the two doctors could have done with being a little less black and white. And also, poor Christian Roberts, quite unknown to him until the film was released, had all his dialogue overdubbed by another actor. I've no idea why, but it is on the record that the director hadn't wanted him for the role and made him quite aware of it. It's very obvious and really quite distracting. 
The mind of Mr. Soames taps into a lot of relevant contemporary concerns of the time, like science versus morality. Has science gone too far? Have the priorities of the entertainment world like money and audience figures begun to undermine the respect for human decency, compassion and respect? The two doctors and their differing viewpoints seem to reflect the contrast between the authoritarian and starchy post-war British past and the relaxed views of the 60s. Hence, Soames taking pleasure in the gardens, trees, water and snowdrops like a flower child. But despite this, the film was a box office failure and sadly quickly forgotten. Which seems a shame. Don't get me wrong, it's no classic, but it's an interesting premise which the director has taken seriously and treated respectfully. It's a very solid cast with unshowy but honest performances and overall the film has the benefit of being something really different from the mainstream. Apparently a little too different from a box office perspective, but still worth a watch, I think. Especially if you're a fan of Amicus or Terence Stamp. So if you do get the chance, give it a watch and let me know what you think. You know that expression, from the sublime to the ridiculous? Allow me to offer you an illustrative example of that concept through the medium of film appreciation. Because following the subtle, low-key, slow-paced mood of the mind of Mr. Soames, we have the utterly bonkers scream and scream again. It has car chases. It has medical malpractice. Missing spy planes. Sinister fascist dictatorships. Detectives eating sandwiches a zombie vampire called Keith, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, and I absolutely love it. But before we get stuck into the plot, let's cover a bit of backstory because honestly it will be relevant later on. As I mentioned previously, Milton Sabotsky was an avid reader and he had an eye for an intriguing and cinematic plot. And in this case, It was the 1967 science fiction story The Disorientated Man by Peter Saxon which caught that eye. Peter Saxon was in fact a pen name, apparently first used by W. Howard Baker. It had become the go-to nom de plume for several writers, including Martin Thomas and Stephen Francis. The Disorientated Man is in fact believed to be a a round-robin story produced by the combined effort of Baker, Thomas and Francis, presumably rather like a kind of extended game of consequences. And to be honest, this will be worth bearing in mind while you watch the film, because at certain points during Scream and Scream Again, you might find yourself wondering if someone accidentally dropped three different scripts on the studio floor and the pages got all mixed up. So on this occasion, unlike with The Mind of Mr. Soames, Amicus were successful in purchasing the rights to the novel they were interested in and also securing financing from Louis Hayward, the head of European Operations for American International Pictures. But this was conditional on Amicus using the same team as the previous year's film The Oblong Box. That's director Gordon Hessler, screenwriter Christopher Wicking, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee. Milton Sabotsky set to work on writing his own film treatment of the story, which he called Screamer, and which, by all accounts, was quite unfilmable. Director Hessler hated it, and writer Christopher Wicking described it as like watching a souffle dying. 
Hessler therefore requested a substantial rewrite from Chris Wicking and was clearly much more satisfied with the end result. In fact, he credited it with elevating the quality of the original pulp fiction by giving it a political dimension. Wicking had been particularly struck by the perturbing vision of the future depicted in the book and was chilled by the realistic accounts of political terrorism and torture. But surprisingly, the inspiration for the mood of the film was the work of Hollywood action director Don Siegel. So presumably they were aiming for something like uh, Coogan's Bluff meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is worth bearing in mind while watching the movie. I mean, it absolutely won't help you understand it any better, but it's a fun concept to consider. The movie was made in a little over a month, with filming starting at Shepperton on the 5th of May 1969 and completing in July. Location filming took place in Trafalgar Square in London, Chertsey in Surrey, and representing the film's Busted Pot Disco, one of the most hip and happening London clubs of the late 1960s, Hatchet's Playground Disco in Piccadilly. So what exactly is the basic plot of Scream and Scream Again? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Okay, this won't be easy, but I will give it my best shot. Uh, Where will I start? With with the opening scene in which a runner collapses in the street, only to wake sometime later in a hospital to find that he now has, much like the old Peter Cook and Dudley Moore sketch, one leg too few. Or the police investigation into the vampire killer, the vicious serial killer assaulting women all over the home counties and leaving not only no blood at the crime scene, but precious little of it inside the victims either. Or maybe the sinister activities of Conrad's, a ruthless torturer working his way up the management ladder of an unnamed fascist dictatorship by means of some kind of Vulcan death grip. And somehow these three plot strands meander towards some sort of conclusion where they don't exactly combine neatly, but by the end of the film, they will at least get delivered to roughly the same postcode. Oh, and there's a vat of boiling acid, which you can't fail to be aware of if you've watched the trailer or seen the poster. Triple distilled horror, as powerful as a vat of boiling acid, says the tagline. It's very insistent about the presence of the acid. And I hope it's not giving too much away to say that you can consider this Chekhov's vat of boiling acid. Like Chekhov's gun, but harder to hang on the wall. And while we're on the subject of vats of boiling acid, can I just ask, does anything else come in the unit measurement of one metric vat? I mean, if you say vat of, I say acid. I can't think of any other way to finish that phrase. Is that just me? Have I watched too many horror movies? And why did the acid need to be boiling? Was it not burny enough already? Honestly, this film raises so many questions. Anyway, sorry, back to the matter in hand. So Scream and Scream Again stars Vincent Price, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, right? The advertising's really clear about this. Well, just barely. Despite the fanfare around the three of them appearing in the film, Vincent Price has an important role as Dr. Browning, the employer of the first murder victim and therefore an early suspect. What, Vincent Price? Surely not. Christopher Lee doesn't make much of an appearance until later in the film, where he plays a government official charged with retrieving the pilot of a missing spy plane. But dear old Peter Cushing appears in literally one scene, I'm afraid, which has neither Lee nor Price in it. So you may want to check the terms of the Trade Descriptions Act if you've shelled out on a copy of the DVD because you understood these three horror legends appeared together. But fear not, because there are a host of other very familiar faces to enjoy. 
There's a brief appearance by Peter Salas. Two of the police detectives are played by Julian Holloway and David Lodge in one of 13 screen credits this year for David Lodge. Uta Stensgaard pops up briefly, as does Judy Huxtable. The Sinister Conrads is played by Marshall Jones. Medical examiner Dr. Sorrell is played by Christopher Matthews. Judy Bloom plays the plucky WPC Helen Bradford. Future Bond villain Michael Gothard plays the vampire killer. And in my favourite performance in the film, Alfred Marx plays lead investigator detective superintendent Belliver. But to be fair, the star of the show is probably the fantastic driving score by David Whittaker. Honestly, bongos have rarely been put to better use than in this film. As I've said, there are three separate plot strands to Scream and Scream Again, and the action continually cuts between them until eventually we start to see glimpses of how they might be linked. We're introduced to this strange totalitarian regime somewhere in Europe, where this man Conrad's responds badly to a succession of negative performance reviews. It's kind of a three strikes and you're out structure, except that in a novel twist, it's the employee killing each successive line manager until they run out of superiors and by default become the boss. I suppose if you do it quickly enough, then no one can object because you're now in charge. Quite clever. In between, you get to see him in action as an interrogator, menacing Uta Stensgaard as a hapless failed defector with some secateurs. He's not a good person. Meanwhile, Detective Superintendent Belliver, with the aid of his team and medical examiner Dr. Sorrell, is trying to investigate the crimes of the vampire killer while walking, talking, barking orders and complaining about the state of the police station's curly sandwiches. This isn't a whodunit, though. We see Michael Gothard as the vampire killer acting mean and moody in a nightclub until a girl catches his eye. She wants a drink, but he insists on taking her for a spin in his car instead. It's a really lovely Austin Healy, though, so it's not all bad at this point. Before long, she's suggestively fondling the car's gear knob in a way that suggests that perhaps she hadn't been that thirsty after all. But unlike this hapless girl, we know where this is heading, and soon it becomes all too clear that she's made a very bad decision. This leads to a sting operation where the WPC played by Judy Bloom bravely offers to go back to the same nightclub and act as vampire killer bait. It nearly goes very badly wrong for her, but her colleagues manage to save her in the nick of time, but the vampire killer manages to make off in his car. The result is the film's main set piece, a fantastic car chase which eventually leads to that most 70s of locations, a quarry surrounded by abandoned buildings. The whole thing wouldn't look amiss in an episode of The Sweeney, to be honest, and it has one surprisingly tense moment where I swear an actor is genuinely wobbling precariously on a plank about 30 foot above solid ground. It was never the most safety conscious decade, was it? The vampire killer is eventually caught and chained to the bumper of the police car, but exhibits an unexpected talent for escapology and takes off again across the countryside before disappearing into a barn, Vincent Price's barn in fact, and jumping into, yes, finally, a vat of boiling acid. But to get away from the police, he'd had to leave his hand behind in the police handcuffs, and the medical examiner is now giving that hand a thorough going over. To his surprise, it's a composite of real flesh and blood, but synthetic tendons and muscles. So Keith the Vampire Killer was as synthetic as his ruffled shirt? Apparently. I'm still not clear on why he jumped into the acid. Not much point in trying to destroy the truth of your existence if you've left bits behind. 
Maybe he just didn't fancy the idea of those curly sandwiches at the police station. And add to all this the poor jogger, remember him? He got admitted to what he thought was a nice clean hospital for treatment on his dodgy ticker. But every time he wakes up, he finds himself missing another limb. The poor man's being whittled down like some old driftwood. It's at around about this time that two worlds collide and the sinister Conrad's contacts Christopher Lee's character, who is, of course, mysterious and taciturn in a way that only Christopher Lee can really pull off. But it's clear he works for the British government and he's been tasked with retrieving the pilot of a missing spy plane. This would be the same pilot that Conrad's had been torturing in a previous scene, but I don't think he mentioned that to Lee when they meet at the most secret and undercover of locations, the fountain in Leicester Square. Because Conrad's has other things on his mind, he wants all of the police files on the vampire killer. So the vampire killer is more important than a cutting-edge spy plane. Interesting. Now we can vaguely start to plot some tenuous connections between totalitarian regimes, stolen body parts, and composite humans with synthetic muscles and violent urges. All of which eventually leads us to a showdown between two doctors, medical examiner Dr. Sorrell and Vincent Price's Dr. Browning, because, yeah, of course he was involved all along. You knew that. And just to bring this full circle, it all takes place in the same modern-day Frankenstein's laboratory set as the mind of Mr. Soames. Yes, the exact same set and props. I told you Amicus were thrifty. And obviously, this is where Vincent Price will get to give the big speech that will explain everything. Well, remember I mentioned that story of how this film went from page to screen would be relevant later? Well, that's because the script does make a noticeable deviation from the plot of the original book. Because while in Scream and Scream Again, these medical misadventures were instigated by an unnamed fascist regime somewhere in Europe, in The Disorientated Man, they were perpetrated by aliens. Yeah, aliens. And according to Christopher Lee, it was part of the original plan for the film that this would be the big reveal at the end of Scream and Scream Again. But whether it was the result of reservations by the studio or poor test screenings or just cold feet by Gordon Hessler and Christopher Wicking, the alien plot was removed completely. I'm really unclear as to why, because if they were worried about the film coming across as too ridiculous, then they've clearly forgotten that their main antagonist was a zombie vampire called Keith and also failed to notice that Vincent Price's final big speech makes little to no sense if you don't really understand who the them is in this us or them conflict that's been at the heart of the action. So the end result is a film that has logic gaps so wide you could probably land a UFO in them. You can try to interpret it as humans versus future synthetic master race, but the dialogue honestly would work so much better if they really were aliens. But despite this, When Scream and Scream Again was released in the UK and US in February 1970, it became AIP's most successful UK-made film. Well, at least until the abominable Dr. Vibes came out the following year anyway. Although it has to be said that the reviews from critics were mixed. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times called the film a superb piece of contemporary horror a science fiction tale possessed of a credibility more terrifying than any of the gothic witchery of Rosemary's Baby. 
It's one of those movies where you have no idea what's going on until the end, but once there, there's no letdown. Variety wrote that the script has almost as many holes as the assorted victims of the action. However, such criticism is completely irrelevant to the film's gripping momentum of horror. Roger Ebert actually rated the film two stars out of four, calling it ridiculous, yet impossible to dislike because they ask only that you share their sense of the absurd. The fascinating thing about this one is that it makes absolutely no sense at all until maybe the last 10 minutes. None. You've got to hand it to the man. He has kind of nailed it in that one. However, Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune was less impressed and gave the film one star, calling it a violent and sick film that begs to be included in our annual Worst 20 list. But despite all that, one expected high-profile fan of Scream and Scream Again was the legendary German director Fritz Lang. According to Vincent Price, Lang loved the film so much he sought out writer Christopher Wicking to tell him personally that the film was suspensefully developed. So don't you let anyone make you feel ashamed of liking this movie. Tell them Fritz Lang sent you. And I'm with Lang on this one. I honestly enjoy this film so much. It's got so many of the the silly little elements that I love about the UK films of this era like the driving jazz funk score and those nostalgia-inducing street scenes and classic cars. And the fact that you have literally no idea where the plot is going to take you next. It feels like there was no rule book in the early 70s and everyone was just making up as they went along. There's nothing cookie cutter here about this film. And I genuinely don't mind being a bit confused as long as I'm having fun along the way. Unlike Hammer, Amicus's contemporary settings bring a modern more gritty edge to films like this and it makes everything feel that bit less safe and despite being a pretty choppy script with no consistent sense of who your main antagonist or protagonist might be its cold war science conspiracy theme fits really well into the world of 1970. Obviously I'd have liked more Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Vincent Price gets a fair bit of screen time and one fun scene with Lee but I do feel a bit cheated out of a chance to see the three masters of horror together. But most of all, what I really want is an entire spin-off series of Alfred Mark's character, no-nonsense Chief Superintendent Belliver, investigating paranormal crimes, like a British Kolchak the Night Stalker. He's fearless, sarcastic, hardworking, not easily impressed by authority, and utterly unfazed by any of the weird nonsense he sees throughout this film. There was a great run of these police detective characters in British horror films in the 70s, like Alex McCarran in Hitchcock's Frenzy and Donald Pleasance in Deathline, and Belova is one of the best. And ideally, I'd like him teamed up with Judy Bloom's WPC Helen Bradford. I really enjoyed Bloom's performance. I thought she was a great screen presence and delivered a really endearing and natural performance. So I looked her up on IMDb, I could only find two other screen credits, which seems like a terrible shame. I hope it wasn't this film that put her off acting for good. Because honestly, I can't say that the film as a whole fits any acknowledged definition of the word good, but there are definitely good bits. I love how naturalistic the performances and dialogue are between Belliver and his team. The car chase is great fun and well shot. 
There's even an absolutely beautiful shot of the detectives reflected in the Carl Wing mirror after the vampire killer is captured that forced me to put my drink down and give Gordon Hester a little clap of appreciation. But much like many of the characters in this film, Scream and Scream Again is a composite of disparate parts joined together in a way that resembles the form of something normal, but has a tendency to behave in wildly unpredictable ways. If you love classic British horror and you haven't seen Scream and Scream Again, then I really do recommend you watch it. Just don't waste any time trying to figure out the plot, put your brain into neutral, turn up the bongos, and embrace the chaos. There's so much thrown into this film, you're bound to find something you enjoy at least a little bit. Just not aliens. We're going to have to wait a little bit longer for them to have their moment in the 70s, I'm afraid. Well, that's it for this edition of the Celluloid 70s podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you found something to enjoy. And if so, maybe you'll consider liking and subscribing. You can find Celluloid 70s on the usual podcast places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. And there are accounts for the show on Facebook and Instagram. So if you know anyone you think might enjoy this content, please let them know about Celluloid 70s and help spread the word. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Celluloid 70s, the podcast that celebrates the films of the 1970s, whether they deserve it or not.